wisdom has common sense value to it. It's very practical. But at the same time, we're talking about not just man-centered wisdom, but but wisdom that is spiritual in nature, biblical in its source, and helping us to discern what God's will is for our lives, right? Not just what the world would say, not just conventional wisdom or, or Google knowledge or Google facts or Wikipedia or whatever, but we're, when you're talking about decisions, you really need to seek the Word of God. And, and many have compared, I explained last week, that men, or two weeks ago, that many have, have referred to James as the wisdom of Jesus Christ. That the book of James is very topical because in many ways it contains the ethical teachings of Jesus Christ. It reflects the Sermon on the Mount. It reflects Jesus' teaching in, in its topical nature and even some of the topics that are brought up. And in, in a sense, it is a New Testament version of Proverbs plus the gospel, right? must be applied through the gospel. So lessons we find in James reflects the wisdom we need to live in terms of practically applying the gospel. Uh, before we get into the passage, I want to remind you that all ethical lessons, right? James has a lot of ethical lessons, and uh, a lot of times he doesn't mention Jesus Christ. He doesn't mention the gospel. And if you just read it at face value and try to apply it, uh, you will struggle. At the same time, if you read it uh, at face value and you don't apply it through Jesus Christ and through the gospel, it becomes dead in that sense. And so James is meant to be read, yes, ethically, but to be applied through the gospel. And so we're going to try to do that tonight too with this passage. Uh, because every command and every piece of common sense wisdom needs to be applied through the transformative power of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's that's the difference between wisdom from the world versus wisdom from God. Last week we looked at chapter 1, James chapter 1, um, and, and the opening verses. So if you have God's Word, you can turn there. Let me start with an introduction, just a quick review. Uh, we, were, we were in James chapter 1, and we looked at verses 1 to 8 last week. Uh, and... And we looked at this idea of, of James giving us wisdom for trials. And we learned last time that trials are designed to test our faith. That as we, uh, as we go through various temptations and, and, and we struggle through it, as we go through various challenges, the more we exercise our spiritual muscles of trusting in Jesus, going to Jesus, trusting in His Word, trying to live it out, the more we build spiritual endurance. These are spiritual muscles. And the more we exercise our spiritual muscles, endurance is built, it results in spiritual maturity, right? Or maturity in Christ, or Christ-centered maturity, however you want to phrase it. And, and today we're going to pick up part two of that. And so starting in verse 9, right now James gives us specific trials. What kind of trials are you talking about, James? And, and today we're going to talk specifically about two types of trials that test our faith. And there are two forms of testing. One is poverty. The second is wealth. So being poor and being rich as both trials. Now, some of you are going to be like, how is being rich in a trial? Well, we're going to see how that begin, becomes a temptation in a trial. So poverty is one form of testing. And so what would that look like? So just a preview is that if you are poor or you're in poverty, then you covet and you seek security and joy in wealth. You compare, you look to people who are wealthier, rich, and you're saying, if only I had that, right? But if you have Christ, right? You have to be content in Christ. Now, how is wealth a form of testing? Well, the temptation is the very opposite. Rather than coveting security 
and joy in wealth. You find your security, your security and your joy in wealth rather than Christ. And your identity is in your portfolio or your accomplishments or your achievements or your position in society rather than in Christ. And so in, 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 in very real ways, this is, this is uh, a trial, right? And we talked about how James is kind of like a New Testament version of Proverbs. Let me show you. You see the exact two trials in, in this example, right? Where, where the author of Proverbs contrasts the trials of the rich and the poor. And let me, let me just read it to you, okay? It's, it, it's up um, over, uh, overhead on the screen. But in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 to 9, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 to 9, the author of Proverbs writes, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I, fall, I, I be full and deny you. So that's the, that's the testing that you're, you're rich and you're comfortable. Uh, and so you deny the Lord because you're full and you're not hungry, so you're not seeking Him. And say, who is the Lord? And that's almost a warning. Like there is a temptation when you are wealthy to forget about the Lord because you don't need anything. Right? There's not much that you need because money can buy things for you. Right? That's, that's kind of what it's saying. Okay? And then look at the second part of verse 9. It says, or lest I be poor and steal. So when you're poor, you're like, man, look at these, look at this injustice, look at the oppression. You know, maybe it's righteous for me to be Robin Hood. Okay, so, so you see this contrast, right? Lest I be poor and steal and profane, profane the name of my God. And James is taking the same line of thought as Proverbs, only now we have to apply this as Christians. Right? But before we get into verse 9, I, I, I want to start with changing your perspective. Whenever we look at a passage like tonight, where it talks about being poor, there are some of us in here who aren't as financially wealthy compared to others, maybe even in this room or definitely in our church or those who are older or those who are outside of Christendom. But none of us are poor in the way that James's audience was poor okay, during this time. And, and, and last week we explained the context. And, and the context is, is that many of these early Jewish Christians who James is writing to, they might have been wealthy at one point. Okay, but due to persecution, they had their possessions either confiscated or maybe their wealth was taken away or they had to run away from their homes. They had to just stop, drop, uh, not roll, but stop, drop, and roll out of town. And, and they had to flee the comforts. And, and, and when you're scattered in the diaspora away from home okay, because of persecution and oppression and, and you're in a foreign land it may be hard to find work it is hard it is hard to to move up in society but to have it at one time to have wealth or comfort at one time and then to lose it and to be impoverished i think that's that's a struggle that that you know that you and I as as American Christians it, it's different. I don't know if and, and there may be some of you in here who are starving and you, you don't have food. Um, if if that is you, please come talk to me. Please come talk to us. But I don't know if anybody in here um, has a, feels tempted to steal and justified to steal because you've been so oppressed that you don't have food. And that's the context here. That's what's going on here. And, and, and so, so you, as you read through James, you begin to see this dynamic, right? 
Why? What are their temptations? So with that, take God's word and turn to James 1, starting in verse 9. James 1, starting in verse 9. James chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Let me read verses 9 to 11 to you. Later I'll come back to verse 12 just as a transition. Okay. James chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Verse 11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers, withers the grass. Its flowers falls, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you can stop there for a second. Point number one that we see tonight is gospel wisdom exhorts the poor to find honor in Christ. Gospel wisdom exhorts the poor to find honor in Christ. Honor is on the table. Because you're talking about societal and economic oppression. Where you're, you're not just lacking basic necessities and maybe money and, and food and shelter possibly, but you're looked down upon in society, right? in an honor-shame society back in, in, in the New Testament times. So, so that's why even the, the language that James chooses in verse 9 says, lowly brother. This is not a short man. Okay, but lowly brother. It refers to a, a Christian brother right, who is economically poor. So we're talking about poverty. Right? Now, John MacArthur explains that many of them, and that's where you know you, you have MacArthur, who and some of you are following the social justice stuff. So this is not a social justice interpretation of this text. Okay? This, there's no social justice slant that we're taking here because even John MacArthur, who is on one side, you know, in his commentary, he explains that that this passage is talking about social economic oppression and poverty. Right? And he explains that many of James' audience were no doubt well off at one point, but had their homes taken away and their possessions confiscated. Okay, either that or they, like I mentioned, they had to simply flee as a result of persecution. And it's important to understand that context because when you used to be comfortable, it's very hard to accept generosity and charity. Some of you might be able to relate to that. I mean, it's one thing if you always grew up in poverty and that's all you knew and you don't see uh, welfare as, as a handout, right? That's all you knew, right? But it's very different from at one time you were pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You had a well-paying job. You were able to take care of yourself. You were able to take care of your family. And now you have to beg or, or, or take donations from other believers uh, in, in other regions that might be trying to support you at one point. It's hard, right? And, and that's why we're talking about honor and shame because James' audience was not only dealing with a physical problem, they were dealing with a spiritual issue of feeling ashamed of their status. And that's why the exhortation is, is, is to boast right, in Christ, is to boast in Christ, is to boast in your lowly position because there's something beautiful about, about being poor is that you can taste what it means to be poor in spirit. Right? And so here's some of the trials that they went through. And I mentioned the first one. They were tempted to steal to feed themselves. Some of them, not all of them. They were tempted to covet wealth, jealousy, right? the emotion of jealousy. Obviously, 
You're jealous of other people, right? You're, you're jealous of what other people have. And so, so, so you're kind of saying, man, if, if only we didn't follow Jesus, we wouldn't have been persecuted and driven out of town. So there's a temptation to leave your faith. And, and, and like I mentioned two weeks ago, that's why James talks about genuine faith. And, and faith without works is dead. Meaning you can't just say you believe in Jesus, live it out. Why was that a challenge for them? Because they were struggling. It, it's tempting when you're in poverty to despise the wealthy. So to look at the pagan world and just to, just to shoot at them and blast at them and to say, oh, they're all pagans because they're wealthy right? and they're oppressing us. Now, there are some, some other things contextually in James that give you a sad reality of what they went through, but it gives you context. I put the references up on there. I, I did not actually paste the verses on there, but, but let me just summarize what's happening. In James chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, it alludes to the fact that when a poor man enters a building, he's asked to sit on the floor. Right? So, so imagine if, if someone came in here, and because they were poor, and somehow we knew, we said, you know, there's no seat for you. You sit on the floor. I mean, how humiliating is that? How humiliating is that, right? James chapter 2, verse 15. James 2, 15 tells us that in James' day, the poor man went hungry. Uh, and and poverty, poverty, yes, may have been a consequence of sin for some, but for many it was a, a, the result of social injustice, right? And then James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, James 5, 1 to 6, gives us the picture of corruption. It, it talks about how the rich are corrupt. And, and so think of the think of third world countries where the rich would withhold wages from the poor, yet there's no justice because the rich can just pay off the government or the or the governing authorities. That's the context that they find themselves in, right? And, and, and so you can see what this word boasting means. And, and so let me exposit that a little bit, right? But when you look at when you look at the text, and verse 9 says, let the lowly brother brother boast in his exaltation. You're like, what exaltation? Uh, I am treated like the lowest of the lowest. I am looked down upon. I am downturn. Well, what exaltation? Well, one first. What, you know, you, you never, even if you're humble, you don't boast, right? I, I mean, you're never just going to be, okay, I'm humble because I, I, just for the fact of being humble. What humility can you boast in? The humility of Christ. Who can you boast in? New Testament context. It's in Christ. Right? So the exaltation for the poor man is in Christ. It's not in this world. It's in Christ. And so then this word boasting in the original language, right? It, the, the meaning of it is not the type of boasting that you would find in, in this world. This is not the Draymond Green, you know, kind of, kind of um, just prideful, arrogant uh, Draymond Green, I don't know if you guys know him, just Golden State Warriors, just one of the most boastful, arrogant basketball players, you know, just, just bad attitude, poor attitude. Anyways, I've let, I, you know I'm a Laker fan, you know, we're not any better, better, okay, but Draymond Green, right, so that's not the time of boasting that this is talking about. This is talking about rejoicing, where, where you're celebrating and you're glorying in something that's God-honoring. And so you can literally translate this, let the lowly person rejoice and glory in their position in God's family. The position of having the richness of Christ, the spiritual blessings of Christ, the richness of being, you know, elected, adopted, being grafted in to the family of God, having the privilege 
of being a child of God, right? Now, don't get me wrong. James is not saying that if someone is hungry, you just tell them spiritual things. He's not saying, you know, someone comes in here starving and you're like, you know what? Jesus is the bread of life. So even though you're starving, that's all you need to hear. You know, or someone comes in thirsty, there's no water, and you're like, Jesus gives you the water of life, so you don't get any water. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. Okay, because, it, you know, if anybody ever reads it that way, they're missing the, the many uh, passages in the New Testament where, where we are exhorted as believers to love not just our neighbor, but specifically when someone comes into the church and they're part of the covenant community of God, we are called to love one another. Right? So, so there is no doubt that not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, you know, together there is God's heart to, that, that we ought to be making an impact and caring for those in, in, in need. So, so that's not what we're saying. We're not saying, and James is not saying, that we just give you know, spiritual uh, blessings and that's it. Right? But, but it's a different community when the gospel transforms people, whether you are rich or whether you are poor. That the gospel transforms this economic social structure. That when you come into the church, and, I, and this happens in our church. You know, sometimes when we think about our church, we, we only think of the English side. Okay? And, and in the English side, for the most part, everyone is middle class. And if you're poor, you're lower middle class. And so there are actually people who drive in here and you look around and everyone's, you know, there's nobody that's, that's, that's driving a car that's busted up, right? I mean, you go to other parts of town. And so so I, I can imagine that for the most part, we are considered wealthy. Even if we're not wealthy and money's not flowing out of our bank accounts, when other people in other parts of California or other parts of LA, they drive into our parking lot on a Sunday morning, they're just like, you guys are wealthy, okay? But then I start hearing stories from the Mandarin congregation of, of how now there's a lot of immigrants. And some of them come with money. Some of them, they spend all their money to get here. Some of them come poor. And, and I hear that when they try to come into the congregation, they feel like, man, maybe I can't fit in in this church. You know, I, I don't have the social economic status that some of the people have. And so, so even in a church like ours, and, and I'm not condemning it because, because that's something that, uh, you know, I'm not condemning a specific congregation or, or anything like that, but these are real conversations we have at the pastoral staff meeting of how we can be better at recognizing those who are different because the church ought to be different. So it's not this, hey, all you need is Jesus and that's it, right? Yes, they need Jesus for ultimate salvation. Yes, they need the bread of life. But the, but the Christian community is more like this. Okay, if you look at the temptations, it's more like this. Look, ideally, okay, ideally, you don't need to steal to feed yourself. Because in the Christian covenant community, people give generously. People give generously. You don't, ideally, you don't need to covet wealth. Because the blessings are shared. I'm not talking about communism. I'm talking about community. I'm talking about Acts chapter 2. That type of community where the wealthy person doesn't see themselves as privileged, but they see that they have a privilege of stewardship to bless the lowly brothers because they're equal at the foot of the cross. Ideally, you don't need to be jealous of the wealthy brother or sister because he or she works hard for you, for the kingdom's sake. Right? 
Ideally, you don't need to despise the wealthy Christian brother or sister because he or she will provide for you with no strings attached, but because they are compelled by the gospel and they don't look down upon you, they don't see themselves as giving you a handout, they're doing it because their lives have been transformed because the gospel changes everything. It destroys what is ugly about this world. It destroys oppression. And you see what happened to Jesus on the cross. The king of kings, the king of this universe comes down and he does not roll up in a Rolls Royce, right? He doesn't roll up like this heavenly king. He's going to come back second coming. It's going to be crazy off the hook. Okay? But he didn't roll out that way, right? When he came incarnated, he was poor. He came in, in humble means. He came as a, as a servant, as a bond servant. And the way that he went out, crucified like a criminal, beaten, spit upon. I mean, if, if that doesn't communicate anything to us, it shows you how Jesus completely reverses what was corrupt during that time, or the Roman Empire, power and wealth of Greco-Roman society, and, and oppression, and extortion, or anything you can think of, right? Jesus came differently. And, and you could not buy him. And he's, and he's showing you that, that money does not have the power of currency when it comes to spiritual things. That nobody can buy their way into heaven. That nobody can purchase righteousness from God. That the only way was to become poor in spirit because our Savior became poor for us by going to the cross. He, he was rich in righteousness. We were, we were full of sin. And He emptied Himself right, for us. And He became the sinner so that we could have the richness the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ if we trust in Him. So, so just look at the cross. And, and, and the gospel applied to wisdom changes everything. And that leads to point number two. Okay, point number two. Point number two tonight is gospel wisdom exhorts the rich. And yes, that includes us, right? To be humble in Christ. Gospel wisdom exhorts the rich to be humble in Christ. And so look at verse 10. Verse 10, once again, it says, so boasting is what we ought to do, rejoice in glory. The, the poor man is to rejoice in glory in his exaltation, in the person uh, and the position he has in Christ. But the poor man in his humiliation, and once again, that humiliation is in Christ. What do you mean by that? That means that even if a person is rich in worldly standards, he has to be poor in order to get into heaven, right? Meaning his spirit has to come and be low and humble and to come before the Lord and say, even though I have everything in this world that I need, I'm bankrupt apart from Jesus Christ. And that takes a lot of work, right? The power of the Holy Spirit to show someone that they actually need a Savior, that they need the Lord. And then there's an illustration. It says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. This is... Just saying, richness or worldly wealth is like nature. It's like the flower of the grass. The, as the seasons change, you know, the flower is going to pass away. The flower is beautiful. Tulips in particular, right, are, are, that's, that's my favorite flower, the tulip. You can ask me why some other time. I might give you a doctrinal lesson on five points. But the tulip is, is my favorite, best flower in the world, right? Any color, any color, right? better than roses. And so, uh, but but even this beautiful tulip, the season's going to change. It's going to die, 
right? And then verse 11, it says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. You look at your grass, you've got to water it every day when it's hot like this the last few months. Uh, you don't water it for one day and, and, and the grass begins to get discolored, right? Because the sun scorches it, right? It's, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. This green grass, so, so just get the astral turf stuff. And it says, so also will the rich man, so it's comparison, so just like what happens in nature, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Meaning, in the midst of pursuing wealth, anything can happen. The stock, stock market can crash, a natural disaster can happen, a, a health issue can arise, and that's it. Right? It's gone, just like that. Just like that. And, and so we all understand this illustration. Right? It's crystal clear, the illustration that James is trying to use. And again, he's writing like something you would find in the Proverbs. He's using nature and grass and flowers. It's kind of like, look, it's common sense wisdom. Don't invest in something that's temporary or fleeting. You know, if you pursue it. And, and he's not saying that if you're wealthy, that you're necessarily sinful or not a believer, right? I mean, that needs to be explained because, because check this out, okay? L look at your Bibles and read it carefully, go back to verse 9. Okay? Because some people, they misinterpret this. right? And, and this is how they misinterpret this. Okay, So verse 9 says, let the lowly, what does it say? Lowly, what's the word? Brother. So that some people say, look, the poor people are Christians. Now, go to verse 10, and let, and let the rich doesn't say brother. So some people misinterpret. They're like, oh yeah, if you're rich, you're not a believer. And some people say, oh, and, and they'll misquote Jesus. And they'll say, oh yeah, you know, it's impossible for a rich man to, you know, enter in to, to heaven and things like that. Right? And, and that's not what it's saying. Right? But some people will read it in. Now, is it giving a warning that if you're wealthy, that might blind you from your need for Christ? Absolutely. That's wisdom, but it's not saying that if you're rich, you can't be saved. Because once again, rich in these times, that's us, all of us, okay? Right, if you have a home, you have shelter, middle class or lower middle class or upper middle class, you are wealthy, right? So what are some of these temptations that they deal with? Okay, what are some of these temptations? What are trials, or I like the word temptation because you're tempted to put your security in your joy in these things. Number one, self-sufficiency, right? You're able to make money, you have money, you have maybe servants if you're really rich. You're self-sufficient. You don't need to depend on other people. And for many, if you're rich, you may not think that you need a God. You may not need that you need to pray for your daily bread or for God's help or guidance. How about pride? Pride in achievement, pride in looking down on the poor, pride in telling people to sit on the ground. You know, joy in wealth, right? Is there is there just a rejoicing in in, in the possessions and material uh, material wealth, security in wealth? Like when you look at your bank account, you don't have to worry, right? Because you have you have you have tons in there, right? That's just these are the temptations of the rich, or devoting your entire life to the pursuit of wealth, right? Letting wealth be your pursuit rather than the pursuit of holiness or the pursuit of Christ, the pursuit of truth. Instead, you're, you're devoting your entire life to pursuit of wealth. So yes, there are real temptations of how wealth can keep you away from God. 
But by no means is this saying that if you're wealthy, you're not a believer, okay? So just want to clarify that because that's really important. But let me show you a, a cross-reference where, where James may have been thinking along these lines, right? And, and this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, and it's a cross-reference on the fleeting nature of worldly comforts. And I think this speaks to us because, you know, it's easy for us to be comfortable in this world, especially in our day. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse, verse, verses 6 to 8, it reads this. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And in this original context, in Isaiah, the word of God is the law of God, the Old Testament, the words of the prophets, the Torah. You take that into the New Testament, it includes scripture, but the gospel. The gospel is the word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a relationship with Christ, that's what stands forever. Right? Similar teachings are found in Psalm Chapter 90, I'm not going to read these to you, but the references are, I, I just put it up there for you. Psalm chapter 90, verses 3 to 6, and Psalm 103, verses 15 to 16. It's similar teaching, similar, sounds the same. Right? Jeremiah chapter 9, let me give you one more. This is a cross-reference of, of a passage that James likely had in mind as he was writing the passage we're preaching through today. Right? He, he's probably just borrowing from this passage, meaning he's cross-referencing. So some people are, this is another whole thing, right? Some people are like, hey, when you, when, when FCBC Walnut guys preach, why do you guys cross-reference so much? Because that's what we see in the New Testament. So anyways, it's making a case for cross-referencing, right? <laughs> why do we cross-reference? Because James cross-referenced. And some people are like, how come John MacArthur cross-references so much? Because probably that's what the New Testament authors did. Right, so anyway, so please, when you teach, Cross-reference, but make sure it's a proper cross-reference, right? But let me read you Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. So this word boasting, the idea of a rich man boasting, right? James is probably thinking about this, right? Let not the rich man boast in his riches, verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's Old Testament. So now, this is to know Jesus Christ, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in this earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord, Jesus Christ. Right? So then the Christ follower ought to rejoice and and glory in things that reflect Christ-like love, Christ-like justice, and Christ-like righteousness in this earth. And, and, and want to see these things happening in the church and outside of the church. So why do we boast in our humiliation? Because humiliation is the opposite of pride. And again, this is not just to come low, just like, okay, you know, I'm just humble. But this is really to come before the cross, right? To come before the cross because... Because both rich and poor, you're equal. What's the equalizer? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. The rich man and the poor man are equal before the cross. Both are guilty of sin. Both need the substitutionary atonement and sacrifice of Christ. Right? And so, before I go here, I, I do want to 
use verse 12 as a transition, okay, because there's a connection. Look at verse 12 now, James 1.12. Notice the connection. So the context of testing, right? The, the poor man is tested, but the rich man is also tested. Now notice the connection. Verse 12 goes both ways, meaning it applies to the previous passage, but it also flows into the next passage, okay? Look at verse 12. This is blessed is, and you can insert the poor or the rich, right? Reading it in context. Blessed is the man, blessed is the poor man, blessed is the rich man, right? But blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so, so the poor man, if he can rejoice in Christ and pass the test in terms of perseverance in the gospel, that he will receive the crown of life. The rich man, if he doesn't idolize his wealth and if he understands stewardship and all the application, that he will receive the crown of life, right? So this word blessing, it, it is the same word that Jesus used in the beginning of each beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. And it means more than just happiness on the surface level. It is a deep-seated deep joy in the person and the work of Christ. So for the poor man, if you find Christ-centered joy in even being poor, that's powerful. That is supernatural power. If you are wealthy, but you don't take pride or security in it, instead you're trying to care for others and you're trying to steward it for the kingdom, instead your security is in Christ, that is supernatural. That is transformative power, right? And so, so, so we must stay steadfast in the trial. What is the crown of life? This can be translated if you study the original language, this can be studied, uh, I mean, this can be translated as the crown which is life. Okay, the crown which is life. So the crown of life is eternal life in Christ. That's what it is. And that makes sense. Whether you're rich or you're poor, if, if you continue to follow Christ, despite the testing and the temptations and the trials, if you continue to put Christ first, if you, try to, if you continue to exalt Christ, if you find your identity and your salvation and your joy and your worth in Christ, then you will receive eternal life. But again, salvation is not by work. So it's not saying if you're poor, but you can just hold on, okay, that, that, that you're going to earn salvation at the same time. It's not saying if you're rich, but you don't fall into the temptations of the snares of money or, the, or to idolize money, then you've earned your salvation. Instead, this is saying the poor man who perseveres in Christ at the same time and the rich person who remains humble and perseveres in Christ it is evidence that they have eternal life. It's evidence that they are living out eternal life. And when they go before Christ, they will have eternal life. They will have the crown, which is life. Right? This leads to point number three. Point number three is application of the gospel. Right? This passage in light of the gospel. And that is, point number three is both poor and rich must boast in what? Because that's the key the key uh, commandment, right, or, or the key exhortation is the is that let the lowly man, you know, boast in in his exaltation in Christ, and let the rich man boast in his humiliation. Both poor and rich must boast in their position before the cross. And so, what's the poor man's boast? The poor man's boast is, I'm not deserving of salvation, but I can boast in my high position that I had in the eyes of God. God sees me as precious. Not in the eyes of this world, right? So, I, so what I wrote up there is not deserving of salvation, but he can boast in in his high position as he has it in the eyes of God, not in the world. Sorry for my grammar up there, okay? 
What's the rich man's boast? Not deserving of salvation, thus he has a lowly position before the cross, right? The rich man says, I don't boast in my worldly wealth, I, I boast in the riches of Christ that I don't deserve, but was freely given unto me, right? And so this is the applicational idea, boasting in Christ, whether rich or poor, okay? Now, I, I, want, to think about, I want you to think about this through the lens of the gospel and, and how this applies to us, okay? And, and so this kind of ties back to the intro, introduction a li little bit. I'll use a personal illustration um, to follow this, right? Young adults, I, I think if you are not at where what I'm describing, okay, you want to get it. We all want to get to a point where we are self-reliant, right? Just, just, I'm just, just, I'm not saying be a bad Christian, but we all want to provide for ourselves. We all want to provide for our families. We want to get on our own feet. That's not necessarily a sinful thing at all, right? But, but, but that is just the world we live in. And it's so easy to boast in our accomplishments, our degrees, our promotion, you know, our basically how the world views us, our status in society. And, and so naturally then, because many of you are very successful or you're on your way to success, again, compared to poverty in this world, it's easy for all of us to come in here and these things are implicit, not explicit, right? You don't think of these things, but it's hardwired into our hearts and our souls, right? Where, where we sit in here and you are thinking, okay, I'm able to make a good living where I'm on my way there. But the gospel carries the op very opposite tone. The gospel, just think about the gospel, okay? The gospel is, is the very opposite. You can't earn it, you can't get a degree. So the opposite, the gospel is not, hey, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. So sometimes when we see someone who's hurting or poor, who's different, we say, hey, why don't you just go to school, man? Dude, why don't you just work hard and earn it? Right? I'm not saying that they don't need to do that because there are some people who abuse the system, okay? But when we speak like that, we don't really understand the gospel. Because none of us went before God and said, hey, I earned it. I pulled myself out of the pit of total depravity. You know, I, I, I'm righteous enough, right? So if we understand what it means to be poor in spirit, that we're all spiritually bankrupt, completely spiritual bankrupt, that we, are, we were in spiritual poverty, couldn't even feed ourselves or take shelter under the cross. We couldn't even do that apart from God's grace. But God in his righteous grace drew us to himself. The Holy Spirit opened our eyes and allowed us to see the cross of Jesus Christ and receive him. Then it changes our attitude, right? And, and now we're thinking, look, I couldn't make myself good enough. I couldn't make myself righteous enough. I did not pull myself together. Jesus pulled me together. That is actually the heart and the tone that reverses the social structure in the church. That is what's going to happen. You know, if we continue to be a vibrant church, and that's our goal, right? If we continue to draw people, and people from different social economic backgrounds or, or, or different ethnicities, you know, this is going to have to be a conversation, right? I mean, you can even see how intimidating it would be. Someone rolls in here, there's so many of you that are like engineers or, or, or your accountants or you're in business or, or you're in some type of professional thing. But what if someone rolls in here if that's any of you, I love you, you know, please hook me up. As, as some of you roll in here, you're like, hey, my entire career goal is to be the manager of Chick-fil-A. And that's it. No, I, I, I'm like, that's awesome. Hook me up. <laughs> right? But, but, it, but we have to look at that and say, hey, that's respectable. 
that's, that doesn't matter. Right? Do you have Christ? Yes. Okay, then let's fellowship because we are equal, right? But, but you can see how intimidating it would be for someone to roll in here and, and, and just be like, hey, man, dude, everyone's so accomplished. And, and man, how do I fit in? But the church should not be that way. Poor artists should roll in here and fit in. The person who's trying to write some script for, like, you know, gospel-centered script for Hollywood who barely can get a job, you know, they're barely hanging out trying to find that break, should be able to roll in here. Should be able to roll in here and just be like, yes, I fit in because of Christ. I fit in because of my position in Christ, his position, her position. We're all positioned in Christ, right? Because none of us saved ourselves. And that's how the gospel applies here. Right? So, so the, in the church, the gospel transforms both rich and poor, equalizes us at, at the foot of the cross. And, and, and here's my personal illustration. Right? Boasting in personal achievement is natural. It is unnatural to boast in receiving generosity. Because that's just not human nature. You, you boast in something that you earn, you rejoice and you glory in it. But for someone just to help you out. Okay, so, so here's my illustration. If I step out there into this world and just have like this worldly conversation, right? Technically, I'm a beggar, right? Because if you think about a pastor, I am paid through charitable donations, right? So in secular language, I work for a nonprofit organization and I depend on charitable donations. How can I boast in I haven't earned anything, right? If, if you guys stop giving, we lose our job. We are dependent on people's donations. And so from a secular perspective, they would look at me like, hey, you're like a beggar. You know, you're like living off a of charity. Right? So I can look at it that way. And of course, none of our pastors are in poverty because of your generosity. Or I can boast not in my own achievement, not in myself. I would never go to someone and say, hey, I earned it. You know, right? But what can I boast? I can boast in you guys. I can boast in the church. I can boast in the church. I, I say, you know what, though? To a secular audience, right? I can say, you know what, though? No one looks down upon me in this reversal of society. No one looks down upon nonprofit servanthood, right? No one, and, and I'll say, look, I'm boasting not in myself, but in you guys. I'm boasting in the generosity of people. I am boasting that the church takes care of their shepherds and pastors. I can boast not in myself, but in the community of Christ. And in Christ, the transformation. Man, that's very different, right? Because the, the nature of man is to boast in our self-achievement. But what happens when you cannot live off of your achievement? You live off of the grace of people. But even if you aren't a pastor, isn't that the gospel? That we live off the grace of God and shouldn't that be how we see others and shouldn't that be how we see ourselves? Right. And so it is humbling. It is humbling, but we boast in the church of Jesus Christ. Right? And so the gospel transforms everything and it shouldn't just stay in the church. I mean, this kind of thing is contagious Okay? The gospel transforms individuals, whether you are rich or whether you are poor. The gospel has the power to change lives outside of the church as well. And because individual lives are being changed, guess what? You work in places. You go out of these four walls. And you begin to see that the church is a powerful 
is a powerful force in restructuring of social injustice and oppression. Now, let me say that with a caveat. You know, only Jesus can change the world, right? We, we cannot reverse people's hearts. We cannot change the world in, 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 in a macro way, but, but we can make a difference. That as the church, individuals in the church are unleashed outside in a missional world, into a dark world, we represent the light of God's kingdom. And as the kingdom advances, then you begin to shape culture. You have to think of yourself that way. But imagine this humble approach going out, right? This humble power that changes, this gospel-centered power of Christ-centeredness where you change culture by being that leader, by being that artist, by being that engineer, being that health professional, being that Chick-fil-A manager, being that business person, being that trash man, being the McDonald's worker, being whatever, accountant, teacher, student, etc. that is rich in Christ and poor in spirit because the gospel has transformed you and therefore you have the power to change everything. Because that's the nature of the gospel. It shouldn't just stop here. As it sanctifies and transforms you, it renews you, and it renews every single person that you touch. Just like Christ. So here's the big idea for tonight's message. The big idea is Christ brings the poor a renewed sense of honor, and the rich a renewed sense of humility. Christ brings the poor a renewed sense of honor, and Christ brings the rich a renewed sense of humility. Pray with me, beloved. Father, we come before your cross tonight and we surrender ourselves because none of us are deserving of the riches of your grace and mercy, yet you poured it out upon any of us who would respond to your son, to his death and his resurrection. Lord, I pray that the transformative power of Christ and the gospel would not stop at just head knowledge, but it would transform our hearts, it would transform our lives, and it, it would flow forward and advance into the city, into our communities, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our families. And Lord, that we would truly be a vibrant church. Lord, and the gospel will shine out of this fellowship. Lord, I do pray for anybody in here who is tempted, tempted to find security in the pursuit of wealth or in wealth, Lord, that you would, you would open their hearts, soften them, fill their hearts with your grace, transform and change them to be stewards. How powerful is that? To be able to to advance the kingdom through stewardship. And Lord, for those who might be poor, if there's anybody who is truly poor, Lord, we pray, Lord, that they would find joy in the church, they would experience something different in the church, that they would find their exaltation and honor and being in Christ. So we come before you as your community, Lord, make us sojourners on mission together for the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.